Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you haven't already rated and reviewed the Single Tracks podcast in your podcast app, now's the time to do it. We're randomly selecting listener reviews to read on the show. And if we choose yours, you'll get a free Single Tracks hat in the mail. Hit pause right now write a quick review, and then listen to future episodes to find out if you won yourself a hat. Happy trails. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Paul Howard. So Paul has been coaching mountain bikers all around the world for over 20 years now. He's a co-founder of the Professional Mountain Bike Instructors Association and is the owner and head coach at Zepp Mountain Bike Camps in Whistler. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Thanks for having me. So how did you get started teaching mountain biking in the late 1990s? Well, it was, uh, we kind of started like a lot of kids, you know, just grew up racing and um, riding in the UK and just with friends in the woods. And then mm-hmm. it was kind of in my, my gap year before university, I got a job as an assistant teacher in Australia and took my bike over and started just sort of helping the the kids in Alice Springs actually in the middle of Australia it was a bit random but yeah I just started riding with the kids and kind of teaching them a little bit and that's that was sort of what initially sparked my interest was like oh this is kind of I wonder if you could do this as a job this was what were you teaching them though I mean were you like what were they trying to do like they just wanted to I don't know like jump ramps or were they like trying to get ready to compete no, because I mean, this was like late 90s in the middle of Alice Springs. So it was the mountain bike network there was just coming around. Um, and there were some pretty cool trails, some really unique terrain. And, and it was more just getting the kids into an activity and showing them the sport. And, and sure enough, you know, most as soon as you get a 14 year old on a bike, at some point they're going to want to jump it. So yeah, it just kind of started off really casual. And then when I was at university, I was looking for a similar experience in the summer, you know, like see if I could find an outdoor ed or or a guiding or or a coaching job in the summer. And I ended up with a teaching, getting a job as a mountain bike instructor at a big outdoor camp in North Carolina. So, oh, cool. That's where it really, that's where it really kicked off. And back then, there wasn't really, you know, the idea of having a job as a mountain bike instructor was was, didn't really exist. So, (laughs) yeah, you know, there were kayak guides and rock climbing guides and, you know, rock climbing instructors, but mountain biking, you know, it was pretty early. So that, that's what really got me into it was that job in North Carolina. And then I stayed there for four or five summers, kind of developing the mountain bike program there and um, developing trails. We built a bunch of trails and then a little we had like a two-week teaching program and a four-week teaching program for teaching the kids it was crazy like we would have up to six six to eight one-hour lessons a day for five days a week Mm -hmm. so the teaching volume like two months of work on that that massive camp in north carolina like the teaching volume as far as like teaching mountain biking it was you know two months teaching there would be the equivalent to like the most It'd be, it'd be about the same as what people would teach in a full season or even two seasons today. Yeah. So it was like fully just chucked into the deep end and given this mountain bike school and said, hey, teach kids mountain biking. And we were like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> How do we do that? And it was it was literally up to us to develop everything. And, and that's what we did. And I, luckily, I had an outdoor background and grew up mountain biking and been in a lot of sort of leadership and teaching roles before so luckily i was in a good place to kind of try and figure it out and that's what we did and then it just kind of blew up from there yeah well you you mentioned that there wasn't a lot of like formal mountain bike instruction you know two decades ago no did you have any sort of helpful instructors yourself or like mentors or did you just kind of figure things out on your own 
back then, like in North Carolina, it was a lot of just figuring it out on our own. The first summer I worked there, I worked with a girl called Jules, and and we we she had a kind of a good background in outdoor um, education, and so between her and I, we figured out a bunch of stuff. But then the second year, she didn't come back, and I I just kept kept building it each year, and it was a little bit of a for sure it was trial and error, but um. I know at school I studied psychology and I learned quite a lot about different learning styles and my mum's a teacher and I, I think people have their natural skill sets and for me I think that was the time in my life where I kind of discovered my natural skill set and it definitely seemed to be teaching so yeah a lot of the time I I had mentors in other ways like uh mentors in terms of showing me that you could make a living in the outdoor industry like Foxy was the guy that kind of ran the outdoor education program at this camp. And, you know, he, he clearly was showing me that, you know, I was 20, 21, 22, something like that. And at the time I was at university doing genetics, thinking I might go and do medicine after I finished that. And then all of a sudden in the summers, there were people showing me that you can earn a living teaching rock climbing. Or you can, you <laughs> yeah. can earn a living. To, like, not a, you're never going to be rich, but you can earn a living doing it. And So I had lots of mentors in, in, in the sort of the wider scope of the outdoor industry of people showing me, you know, if you work hard, you train hard, you get certified, you get organized, and you kind of treat it like a chosen career path, mm-hmm. that there's a way to do it. If you treat it like a sort of a summer job, then it will only ever be a summer job um so yeah there was definitely some people that helped me in those aspects yeah well were you surprised like as you were putting together this first like program like the curriculum and stuff were you surprised at how much there is to learn about mountain bike skills yes and no like i've always been really analytical and even as a kid growing up i was never a natural mountain biker and my best mate growing up, Danny Swood, was an, uh, annoyingly good on a bike. <laughs> yeah. He would just learn, oh, I'm going to bunny hop over this four-foot wall. And he, he would just be able to do it. Uh-huh. And then I would have to like, oh, I can't do that. And it would take me like four months to figure out how to do it. Right. So I always had that kind of mind with it. And then around the same time where I got into mountain biking, and uh, or teaching mountain biking rather, I started learning to, uh, when I finished uni, I started my snowboard instructor training Mm -hmm. and then seeing how it was all broken down in the winter you could and what we'd been developing in the summer there were a lot of crossovers and similarities and that's where i think what we were doing in north carolina it kind of it almost gave that credibility because when i started the snowboard stuff a lot of the stuff we'd developed or i developed was very similar and that's where i felt like oh we're on to we're on to something good here because these ski and snowboard guys have been doing it for decades so um the fact that we had quite some similar structure and similar ideas and concepts and methodologies it was sort of a it was a good way of knowing that we were on the right track with something and uh but yeah so in some ways uh, it was surprising because it's like anything when you analyze it and you break it down you start kind of going into this rabbit hole of like oh if we if we look at this piece and then we break that piece into two smaller pieces and then we look at those smaller pieces and it's sort of, yeah, I guess it's a little bit of my science background too. Is I think that's just the way my brain's always worked. Is you just When you study something, you always break it into pieces. And then when you have it into bigger pieces, you break it into smaller pieces. And it's, you end up, yeah, you definitely end up going, wow, there's a, there's a ton of information here. Yeah. Well, tell us about the Professional Mountain Bike Instructors Association. How did that come about? Like, was there a need for mountain bike instructors to be certified? Yeah, well, it was it was kind of towards the end of my time in North Carolina. Like I'd been teaching mountain biking full-time every summer for four or five seasons, and I, I decided when I finished my degree that I was going to give this a try and I was going to try and make a career of teaching snowboarding and teaching mountain biking. And mm-hmm. when I finished my degree, I'd, I got my snowboard instructor certs and similarly i wanted to do the same for mountain biking and i was like well i've I've been this mountain bike coach and i've run this mountain bike school for a few years and 
I kind of want to get a piece of paper that that <laughs> justifies that knowledge or that experience. Yeah. And so I ended up doing an instructor course in the UK and I did one in Canada and um yeah, long story short, they were pretty horrible. Um and that, uh, and the fact that there was nothing in the US at the time too and it, it was it was very clear to me there that like there wasn't much available and what was available just didn't measure up to the ski or snowboard industry at all. So that was definitely one of the motivations behind starting Zep was I felt like I could take some of the stuff I'd developed uh, in North Carolina and, and some of my experience in the winter as well and at least start to offer the industry a stronger product, I think, I think it's always that way in life, isn't it? You either complain about something or you do something about it. And that was really why we started Zep was, yeah, I, I felt confident we could offer a good quality yeah. course. And, and there was a need for it because for us, like going back to your point, like if, if you want to improve the, uh, the quality of the teaching of a sport, then it has to be, there has to be a standard so that, mm-hmm you know, the end user, the person on the bike buying the mountain bike less than or the, the tour or the, or, the, or the coaching camp, whatever it is, they know they're buying a certain quality of um, instructor, educator. Mm-hmm. And that, that's definitely taken a while for that culture to come around because before you can train instructors, you need people to understand the value in getting a lesson but it's hard to understand the value in getting a lesson if the instructors aren't very good. So it's a bit of a chicken and the egg scenario, right? And we still have that a little bit in the industry today, but but nowhere near what it was in the late 90s and early 2000s. So that, that was our biggest goal. It's like if, if we can offer a better quality course and then and try and build it to a point where it becomes an industry standard, then ultimately people will they'll have a better experience if they do take a lesson or they do take a camp. They'll see the value in doing it. And from there, we can train more instructors. So you, you see it in the winter. It's, you know, so many people take ski lessons and snowboard lessons because they see the value in it. And that's what we've been working really hard on in mountain biking is it's, it's really no different. You take a golf lesson, you take a tennis lesson. Mountain biking is just as complicated if not more complicated than those sports so right you think of tennis the environment is very consistent you think of golf the environment is less consistent but you, you kind of look at that relative to mountain biking where the trail is <laughs> completely different right. where the conditions can be completely different the the bikes can be completely different like so many constantly changing variables you have all these biomechanical skills but then you have the mechanical skills of the bike itself so if everybody is teaching it a different way and to teach teaching it to different standards it it makes it really hard to trust any lesson or product Mm -hmm. so that's why we need the the industry needs that certification and that that kind of standardization a little bit is yeah making sure we're all on the same page where we're teaching off the same system and then ultimately it makes lessons safer and and more effective and then people are more likely going to either take a lesson and or they're going to I think for us it kind of reduces the what I've seen is it reduces the barrier into the sport if you want to try a sport and there's a coach to help you try it it's going to be a better experience and you see this you see this a lot in the winter with the classic kind of girlfriend boyfriend scenario hey just stand on your board and and just point it down and just turn and like they're having massive arguments like it's it's horrible and then you see the student take a lesson and they love it and they're hooked yeah i imagine like in the early days of mountain bike instruction it was a lot of it was local and so it would be you know somebody in the area that either was just a talented rider and so that was kind of their credibility or Maybe they did have like a teaching background, and so that was kind of a natural outlet for them. But today, to see it, you know, yeah, much more rigorous and regimented. Have the techniques in mountain bike skills instruction evolved much over time with that? Like, are there best practices that, you know, have started to become apparent after training a number of instructors from all over? For sure. I think, yeah, I mean, to your point, like, 
back in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was it was really loose. I mean, primarily a lot of coaches teaching back then were, you know, racers or athletes or retired racers. And the classic thing you'd you'd often see, and you still see it a bit today, is is those those strong riders teaching less skilled riders to ride how they ride. <laughs> and, right. and a good a good coach understands that, you know, I I jump like this, or I do a front wheel lift like this, mm-hmm. but I'm teaching someone two or three ability levels down from me. And so how I might do that skill or that maneuver is is going to be different to how they should learn it. So how you do it versus how you teach it, sometimes they're the same and sometimes they're different. And a good coach understands that. The classic is always um, you get pro riders telling people to pull off the lip of a jump. <laughs> uh, not all the time, you know. I don't want to. I don't want to put a, a, a wide brush stroke onto providers coaching because some of them are amazing coaches. But that's that's the classic scenario. If I'm if I'm honest, and um, and you know how you might teach someone who's new to jumping is very different to how someone might jump who's been jumping for for twenty years. So, in terms of sort of how things have developed, I think a lot a lot of it through the last fifteen. 20 years of training instructors is just giving them consistent methodologies to not only structure a lesson but to deliver the right content and that's really how we break teaching down is you can have great structure to the lesson you know, a good intro introduction and warm-up and assessment good training will and teaching and feedback and demonstrations and stuff and that that's really all the teaching skills side of it and then you have the content you know what skills are you going to teach and in what order and on what terrain and uh, what progressions are you going to use to help introduce those skills gradually or what tactics are you going to use to help your students feel certain things it's those kind of teaching tools that have become a lot more consistent because in the past no one was really trained how to teach and i think that's something we've been really big on in pmbi is the pedagogy Mm. side of it is someone coming into into a course and saying it's great you can ride a bike but we're going to learn how to teach and teaching is a skill just like any other skill and you can you can be a horrible teacher or you can be an amazing teacher regardless of how you ride a bike and just because you can ride a bike great doesn't mean that your teaching skills are going to be great so i think that that's been a big shift in the last you know couple of decades is people understanding and respecting that teaching is a hugely important skill and if they want to be a coach regardless of how they ride a bike they need to understand how do they develop their teaching skills so i think that's probably been the biggest change is, is people just respecting that that they they need to they need to be a strong teacher and and not just a, a shredder yeah well you kind of touched on this earlier but you know this new found sort of availability of instructors and quality instruction definitely seems like you know it's it's different from the past so what is this going to mean for like the next generation of riders are we going to see more talented riders are we going to see people you know breaking new barriers because of this i think so for sure I, I, and i we've kind of seen it a little bit already and we're seeing we're seeing it now and I think a good example is, you know, in Whistler, we've been having kids <clears throat> kids camps for a long time. The local club here, Walker, is, is an amazing is an amazing bike club. We have a great community, and there's there's been kids coaching programs here for a long time. And you know, there were times when Semenuk and Finn Isles and all those kids went through a lot of the local community coaching programs here. And it, partly, what those programs do is as much as sort of teach them skills is it it just provides an entry for kids to get involved in the sport safely and i think that's one of the big shifts coaching has has provided the the sport of mountain biking is now parents feel way safer and way more comfortable about letting their kids try the sport sooner because there's there's kids camps and the kids camps are coached by certified instructors Mm. 
Yeah, it's not just kids going out and like building ramps in the backyard or you know yeah. <laughs> trying yeah. really dangerous stuff. It's it's all like much more structured. Yeah, it's structured, it's organized, but you know, it's still a ton of fun. And I mean, going back to like my time in North Carolina, like we, we were sort of proud how sort of safe and kind of organized we were running our camp in North Carolina. But we would be out on the trails and you would see trucks turn up with 20 bikes on the back. <clears throat> All the bikes were like, look like they're about to snap in half. Yeah. And then one kind of slightly older kid or, or young adult, like, right, kids, let's go. And they'd like one instructor to like 20 kids and they'd just ride off up into the road with like no water bottles, like <laughs> half the helmets didn't fit. And like, it was so loose. And, um, and basically, you know, these days that just wouldn't be able to happen. And I think, having an instructor you know standard is is a big part of that and now and now parents you know they expect it and adults expect it too when they sign their kid up or they sign themselves up for a coaching camp or a clinic there's now that expectation uh much more than there used to be that you know are you certified what's your certification level are you certified with pmbi and things like that so i think it i think for the next generation it it's great for the end user because now there's a resource within the sport for people to either either try it for the first time or have their kids try it for the first time. But there's a, there's a system or a product in place for them to feel more confident about it. Or there's a system of coaching and, and camps and clinics in place for people to continue because, you know, in the late 90s, early 90s, like mountain biking from, from where I was standing was pretty much a is you know is it considered an extreme sport i hate that mm -hmm. term but like <laughs> extreme everything was extreme and uh it was for like bros that were like you know 18 to 30 years old and it was just for dudes right whereas you look at mountain biking now and it's it's young old male female whoever and and i think coaching camps and instructors you know have definitely played a a part in that because it's like i said before it kind of opens up the doors for everybody to try it to be less intimidating and and more inviting to anyone from all walks of life or different backgrounds different ages so sometimes i think like what happens if you didn't if the bikes hadn't evolved and you just had coaching mm -hmm. or or the other way around if you if coaching hadn't involved and the bikes had involved like I think partly the growth of the sport and the health of the sport right now is all of these things. Like trails are way better than they used to be because green and blue trails are way better than they used to be. Same with the bikes, same with the coaching. I think it's sort of those three things that work together. Yeah. That's where you get the magic. I, it sounds kind of cheesy, but <laughs> if you have like a really well, well built trail with a new modern bike with a professional certified coach, like, holy cow, the gains you can make in a short time are huge compared to where we were 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, what does the typical Zep Mountain Bike Camps client look like? Is it is it someone who's just starting out? Is it young people? Is it older people who are like trying to progress? Like what what are you seeing there? I think I think for us with Zep, when I started Zep in Whistler, it was we kind of looked at the other camps at the time and we wanted to make sure we because I think there's kind of that respect in the mountain bike industry that I love where, you know, if there's one camp near you offering a certain product, you're going to look to sort of offer a different product. And mm. A, that kind of makes business sense. But B, I think there's kind of that respect. Well, they're handling that. Let's not sort of jump on their turf. Yeah, I've heard that from other instructors too, which is interesting. Yeah, and there's definitely kind of crossover for sure, and you end up offering similar or the same products as another coaching company. But each coaching company kind of has its main gig. So for us, like when we started, we wanted to focus on in intermediate um, and up adult riders. We we really wanted to focus on adult skill based training. Mm -hmm. But since then, you know, we we've, we've definitely grown. Like today, we we do a lot of private coaching lessons from beginners all the way up to advanced but i'd say our, our main zap client outside of the kids programs that we run is sort of the discerning adult rider that can already ride and they 
they want to learn how to jump or they can already jump and they want to learn how to whip or they like technical trails, but they struggle on steep rock rolls. Everyone wants to corner better. That's pretty much, I think, every lesson everyone shows that I want to corner better. So, yeah, I'd say our sort of most common rider for, for adults is, is typically um, intermediate and up. But um, last summer we started a mums program and that was that was a big success and that was a lot of fun. We had a few people sort of say, well, why, why don't you, why isn't it, why is it a mums program? Why isn't it a women's program? And first of all, there's a ton of women's programs in Whistler already. Uh, so we felt like that that niche was sort of being looked after and my wife we have two kids and a lot of her friends and there's just a slightly different demographic so it was kind of our twist on the old women's camp and these moms had a such a good time they felt less intimidated to try stuff because they weren't with you know 18 19 year old girls they were just sort of with with their own friends their own age group and so these days we have a real mix we have, and then we've started kids camps six to nine year old kids camps and then we have the teenagers in our our recent youth development teams so uh full, full kind of smorgasbord of people these days but traditionally it was kind of that intermediate right or not yeah well right now it looks like you're offering distinct bike park and enduro camps which is one of those more popular than the other and how are kind of the skills different for each of those too yeah it's interesting like I think because we're in Whistler and a lot of our, for our like one week bike park and enduro camps, that product is typically someone that's, you know, traveling to Whistler for a holiday. Um, it's not necessarily a local in the Cedar Sky Corridor. So with that in mind, they're kind of traveling to Whistler and they, they often just, why they're coming is because they want to ride the bike park because it's, it's an amazing bike park. It's the best in the world. So typically the bike park camps are more popular, but definitely in the last five, five or six years with the blow up of the EWS and all the new enduro bikes, the enduro camps have got more popular, but it's, it, it's funny every summer, like our enduro camps include coaching in the bike park as well. And that that's a huge advantage of the bike park is you can do so much more skills development um, in a short space of time and for less effort. So we'll do like an intro day into the bike park and the enduro camp. And then, you know, the, the second or third day or whatever, we're kind of scheduled, so to speak, to ride somewhere else in the valley. And, and they're like, well, can we, can we just, can we stay in the bike park tomorrow? <laughs> and it, it happens on every single camp. <laughs> It's pretty funny because they, they kind of get it. As soon as they ride it, they're like, wow, I can hit 50 jumps in a run and I'm going to learn Yeah, I'm gonna learn how to jump way quicker. Or it's the same with corners. Or like we can do one lap from Garbo down to the village and ride like eight different, nine different rock rolls. Mm, yeah. So in, in terms of skill development outside of technical climbing, obviously because you're not doing that in the bike park, it's just so much more efficient. So they, they, uh, I, I think, I think that's one of the, you know, going back to that previous conversation. I think bike parks have played a huge role with coaching because it's finally, as coaches, we have terrain and environment where we can much more easily and efficiently break things down and and teach essentially. So I think those two have gone hand in hand, and Whistler Bike Park's been. I think people are, don't always understand Whistler Bike Park. They they think it's so popular because you know it's got all these amazing rad trails and these jump trails, and it and it is popular because of that. But I think it's the mm -hmm. what Whistler did really well earlier is they did green and blue trails really well, and it allowed them to get kids in there, mm -hmm. newer riders in there, le less confident riders in there, and it and it allowed them to run coaching programs. And products and and the growth of Whistler, I think, is because you know from a very early day they've they've been able to do that and understand that well, and so that's kind of fed into the local community. And from a long time ago, everyone realised like, oh, kids can go down, crank it up, and and new fifty-year-old riders that have never mountain bike before can learn how to jump. And so it's sort of, I think, that's been a bike parks have played a big role in helping coaches deliver the 
the lessons they they want to deliver because it's you can have the best coach but if you don't have the terrain it's it can certainly make your job a lot harder yeah that's really interesting something i hadn't thought of before but yeah it totally makes sense yeah so what what's the number one skill people are looking to develop and then what is the number one thing that they actually need to work on are these two different things you mentioned you mentioned cornering which i think most of us know we're not great at it um but yeah are there are there things beyond that and are there things that that we're not good at that we don't even know we're not good at yeah i could probably talk about this for like a week but <laughs> so if i waffle on you just have to tell me to shut up but uh yeah this is common like in a bike park scenario obviously the common one people you know request they want to learn to jump and uh and so the first thing we do is we just go down a, a simple trail blue beeline trail or something and we assess their cornering skills and their ability to pump on the bike because mm-hmm. it if you think of uh, a corner and a jump, there's a lot of similar physics going on in terms of going through a radius and feeling pressures and trying to maintain a strong position. So mm-hmm. sometimes we say like a jump is just a corner turned 90 degrees, really, because <laughs> there's so many similar physics going on. So that's the classic one. They want to learn to jump, and then but they can't pump through a berm without getting pushed into the back seat, mm-hmm. and they can't they can't maintain a centered strong body position as they pump a berm and they and they can't get the timing right so it's and until you can do those sort of core skills through a berm then how can you be expected to do that safely through the transition of a jump Hmm. when you're then obviously you're kind of projected into the air so there's more consequence so it's very common that we'll get in a bike park scenario people want to learn to jump and we end up just doing working on their body position their pressure control and timing and actually improving their cornering and getting them to ride as an active rider like so many riders don't pump the bike enough push on it unweight it try and pick it up mm-hmm. and try and generate speed through pressure control and without that fundamental skill it's, it's hard to then learn to jump so we we break biking down into different sort of fundamental skills so they're really the tools you need to do the job and if you don't have certain tools you, you can't do the job and the job of jumping requires really good pressure control and timing skills to do it safely. So that's that's a common one. And then for cornering, again, you know, probably in or out of the bike park scenario, the, uh, the common one is people think they need to get better at sort of bike body separation and lean the bike more than the body, mm-hmm. which we've all, I'm sure these days, that, that technique's pretty, pretty well known. Mm-hmm. But again, same thing. We'll go through a corner and their weight will go back. And if you're not centered and strong on, on the corner, a lot of the time you're going to lose front end grip. So same thing with a lot of cornering lessons. We end up just working on body position. And then once we've dialed that in, we can work on other things like separation and pushing on the bike or rotating the hips and stuff like that. It, they, it's nearly always that process where they'll, they'll want to learn X, but then they need to go back two steps and learn something more fundamental and build that before they can go back to learning learning X. Like rock rolls is, a, is another classic. Like that's a huge one we see in BC just because of the, the riding we have here, and especially around Whistler and Squamish is sort of rock slab, rock slab heaven here. And, um, you know, the classic is just back brake, put your weight back, put the back brake on and skid down the rock face gradually <laughs> picking up speed like right so you know that you want to learn rock rolls what you actually need to learn to do is learn um expert front brake skills how can you get super confident using the front brake only to control your speed but stay stable and keep two wheels on the ground as you do it so i spend half my summers i swear just creeping down rock rolls really slowly with just my front brake on to show students, you know, without this skill, you will always pick up too much speed on a rock roll. Yeah. And we get into it a lot more with body position and, and all that kind of stuff. But body position and braking are like two peas in a pod, say. So. Well, speaking of braking, I feel like there's some myths around that. I mean, one of them, all, all beginners, it seems like the first thing they hear is like, don't use your front brake. Right. So, so are there other like mountain bike myths that you've encountered over the years like that? 
Oh, loads. Like, I I actually did a bit of a Mythbusters series on Pinkbike. It's like a Zep Mythbusters series you can look through. And we kind of address a bunch of those. Like, the classic one is when you go downhill, you put your weight back. Which, which these days, I think, is pretty good. Like, people are starting to understand, like, no, you don't do that. And especially with drop, especially with dropper posts. Right. Well, yeah, that was... That was because you kind of had to, right? Like if your seat is so high, the only place for you to go is like back and getting over it. But yeah, and I think that was that was the big cause of the problem was what you wanted to do was get low, mm -hmm. but you couldn't get low because the seat was in the way. So you had to move your hips back. But then mm -hmm. that got misinterpreted in the <laughs> 80s and 90s as yeah. like, oh, you go downhill, you put your weight back. But but it was sort of a misinterpretation of what you were actually trying to do. Mm. So again, that's where equipment and coaching have really kind of come together. Like dropper posts now, like you don't have to put your weight back. And if a good coach understands why you have to stay centered and they understand how to teach it. And, and then again, position and balance is that fundamental skill. If that's off, then anything else you do is going to, going to struggle. So I think that's a big one. The other one I hear a lot is, don't break through corners. <laughs> that that's a classic one, and it, it's more about how much to break and when to break through a corner and which break you can use. So many people are struggling through the corners because they're literally just letting them off completely. Because hmm. they they've heard a racer or they've heard some racer say it at some point, but they don't necessarily appreciate that the racer has. Yeah. I feel like we learned that with cars too when we first learned to drive, right? Like they tell you brake before the turn and then, you know, not in the turn. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I did a bit of driver training years ago and like when you when you do that, I um, mean driver training like a uh, race, race car driver, not um, a <laughs> little different than than your daily driver. Yeah, it wasn't a penalty. I didn't have to do extra driving for some reason, but yeah, we were on a track in a track car basically, and and uh, the big thing when you're going fast in the car is you have to have the gas on through the corner because it puts drive into the tires and you get more grip. If you let if you let off through the corner, you also get less downforce and the car gets light and you spin out. It's one of the most common reasons why cars spin out on tracks. Um, so straight away there, like you're in that environment, you, you've been told to brake and then let off and as soon as you get on a track they're like do not do that right and it's the same here like we often talk about trail braking like maybe you'll let the front brake off but you might just keep the back brake on a little more just so that the bike doesn't accelerate so much and get away from you and that that's one example of addressing that there's a ton of other ways of addressing that but um yeah 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 there's there's a ton of myths out there the, the other one i get is the one you mentioned like for beginners like don't use the front brake and I actually heard someone teaching that last summer, and I was like, full on. Full like, on where's your head. certificate? I'm going to rip it up right <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, totally. I was like, oh, my Lord. And <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't certified. But, um, you know, the first thing you can do to help a beginner is show them how to safely use the front brake. Because the front brake, you know, as we all know, that's, that's the one that's going to make you stop. And that's the one that's really going to control your speed. So if you're starting your mountain bike, career and you've been told to not use the one thing that actually slows you down like holy so it's not about not using it it's more about well let's introduce you to this front brake let's show you how we can use it safely let's go through a progression that builds your confidence gradually and um yeah and all the beginners and, and kids that walk away from our camps they're, they're they've never been introduced to the concept or the or the notion that the front brake is dangerous like that is that is that isn't even in their conscious, and it it impacts their riding positively on on day one. Yeah, well, yeah, and you mentioned too about how the equipment has evolved, and you know, for a lot of us who started out, brakes weren't very powerful, you know, many years ago, and so you know, you would use two fingers or three fingers to pull on the levers, and now it's one and um, dropper posts too. I mean, do people? Could you even teach a class or a clinic to people that don't have a dropper post like is that even is that like required equipment nowadays in terms of like the skills and, and things that you need when you're on the trail yeah it's a good question because you know i remember it was i think it was three four years ago i was running a pmbi instructor course and 
I remember standing there and I looked at the whole group of instructors that I was training and it was the first course where everyone had a drop post. I was like, this is awesome. It's going to be so much easier to show you guys how to teach this stuff. Um, it's certainly not a requirement in lessons, but I find it's less and less common for somebody to come to a lesson, even a new rider, with, without a dropper post. Um, but, but, you know, a good coach can always adapt. There's, there's things you can do. It's, you know, if you go back, back a few years, let's lower the seat for the downhill section. Let's, mm -hmm. If we can't lower the seat, let's, we're definitely going to go back even further and show you how to get low and put your hip behind the seat because the seat's, you know, to the moon. But generally speaking, you know, a coach can adapt to any equipment within reason that the student shows up with. But I think these days it's, it's, it's thankfully, it's less common. And at the very least, they have a quick release. So if they need to quickly, you know, they're doing a cornering session or whatever, they can just lower the seat a couple of inches or they're doing a downhill section or something. And yeah. Is, is instruction keeping up with the equipment? I guess one thing that comes to mind would be like e-bikes, right? So with, is that something that, that you're able to incorporate into your instruction in terms of like, well, these bikes are weighted differently and, and how do you manage the acceleration and those kind of forces that are going to be different than the, the bikes that people have been using up until this point? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I, I remember now what you were saying with, um, is the coaching keeping up? Yeah, with respect to e-bikes and all these, you know, the evolution of bikes the last few years, like I definitely think the coaching is, everyone involved is so passionate. Every year we're looking at how we teach, whether it's a Zep camp or whether it's a, an instructor course with PMBI. We just constantly have that nature of you walk away and how could I do that better? How could we train instructors better? How can I improve the resource materials for coaches or how can I improve the lesson progressions for students? Like we're just constantly trying to find ways to improve our coaching. So the industry just trusts it more and more. And, and a big part of that is keeping up with equipment. So for example, with e-bikes, like you mentioned, we have, um, we just, we've been working the last couple of years on an e-bike instructor module for a certified PMBI instructor, we've got an online e-bike module coming out so they can look at how can you take the the methodologies and the content that you've learned as an instructor through your PMBI courses and adapt, you know, X, Y, or Z if you have a student on an e-bike. And we're also working on like an adaptive mountain bike module as well for because that that's another part of the sport that's growing too is adaptive mountain biking and these three-wheeled bikes with motors on them and hand-driven and um so that yeah i think that's always been a natural part of the sport because whether it's an e-bike or an adaptive bike like you know we've gone from you know in the late 90s we you know we've seen well now now we've got suspension and then we've got disc brakes and then and now we've got full suspension like i think that's just constantly uh the two things are constantly evolving together and push each other I, th I think for us the bikes evolve the coaches evolve the coaches evolve the bikes evolve and people are getting better on bikes that's the other thing they're getting better on bikes because they're starting off with better information and so they want better bikes they want bikes that can handle more and you it's sort of a again a chicken and the egg like are the bikes getting better so people are riding better or are people riding better and so they're demanding better bikes. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, a virtuous cycle. I mean, yeah, one gets yeah. better and it pushes the other to get better. And yeah, it just keeps going on and on. Yeah. So I, I think that's our job as professional instructors is you've got to constantly reevaluate every year. What are we doing? What's happening in the industry? And how can we stay ahead of the, ahead of the curve? Yeah. Well, as someone who coaches mountain bikers and who's developed curriculum over the years, do you think it's possible for people to become skilled riders simply by watching YouTube videos and practicing at home? Or is there something, is there something to be gained by doing it in person and having like sort of a more one-on-one -on -one experience? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting question. And we definitely laugh and like talk about this quite a lot, as you might imagine, because 
I mean, that's probably what most people do. I mean, there's probably way more people that do it that way than go to a coach, but, but I imagine it's a different experience. Oh, totally. And it, you know, I guess the short answer is it depends what video you're watching. If you're watching watching a Zap video, it's going to be good. But the problem is, like, we have, uh, well, everyone knows it, right? Like, YouTube has a wealth of information on there, and a lot of it is pretty horrible as far as mountain bike coaching goes. Mm -hmm. You talk to any any sort of respectable mountain bike coach about YouTube, they're they're probably going to sneer at you because there's a lot of horrible information on there. And and some of that information is by by I won't use any names, but like well respected mountain bike channels with X races and World Cup races, and they're telling you to do things that they're not even doing themselves. Um, huh. Yeah. You know, oh, you want to lean back down this bit, and then they ride down it, and you're like, he didn't lean back at all. So, <laughs> so that's, yeah, which is just a complete disconnect of like. How, very skilled rider, but they didn't necessarily understand how to teach properly. And but you know that being said, there is some good info on there. And the way I look at it is like, if if you happen to come across a good video series, it's going to help. I think it can be a great resource. And more and more these days, people are making better how-to videos because more and more these days they're coming from certified coaches and they're not coming from other riders in the industry that don't necessarily have that training or background. So I, I, it, I think it's just sort of, you got to sort of filter through the weeds and try and be aware of who is making that video. Why are they making that video? What is their background? Are they making money from that video or is that a professional coach just genuinely trying to help the mountain bike community? Um, whether they're making money or not, it, I always try to look at that. And, you know, for me, I look at, I'm a snowboard coach and instructor and instructor trainer as well. And there's a ton of, same in the winter, there's a ton of like how to do 360s on a snowboard and, and how to carve on a snowboard. And it's the same thing. There's some really horrible videos out there. But you kind of get through the weeds and you find a couple of really good snowboard channels and you watch them and then I do it myself and then, oh, that was a cool tip. I didn't think of that. And then you go try it on the hill the next day and you're like, oh, that was cool. That helped. So all information is good information. I think I think the real question is like, how does watching YouTube videos and practicing on your own compare to getting a coach? Like for me, that's always the the real question and you know youtube videos and practicing on your own is obviously free or free-ish depending on what it is on youtube and obviously you have to pay for a coach but if you get if you get a good coach that pnbi certified they've got years of experience it's in all honesty it's night and day because a huge part of the learning process which i think the modern world kind of forgets with this you know this massive growth of youtube and stuff like YouTube is a huge part of the learning process is assessment and feedback. So, you know, we, and we have this in our pedagogy and PMBI, like it, it's great. You can explain something clearly and even demonstrate it to your student, but can you analyze their writing, tell them what they did well and give them tips on how to keep improving? Right. Yeah. Everybody's starting from a different point or, you know, may have bad habits that they've picked up and that they need to address. Yeah. Or you might just try something new and you tried it too early or too late and then you think, oh, that was horrible, that didn't work. But all you needed was a coach to watch you and say, you did the right move, you just did it too early and, and too too quickly. And that's the huge value of a coach is you're going to have that that person you know next to you on the trail. And that's a hugely important part of learning is assessment and feedback. It, it's a continuous cycle. And if you don't have that assessment and feedback, essentially what happens a lot of the times, so you just hit a roadblock. You, you'll get to a certain point trying to teach yourself. But if you really want to progress efficiently, then then hire, hire someone. There's a reason why, you know, all the best athletes in the world have coaches. And they have coaches for years because they can't do it themselves, you know. They they need someone to watch them and be like, well, yeah, try this, uh, try that. 
and uh, it's yeah it's huge with the youtube you just kind of miss out on that whole part of the process right right it's very one-sided so in your opinion how are mountain bike fitness and skills linked you know it seems like a lot of times new riders maybe have a hard time separating the two like when they're thinking about tackling a difficult trail you know like is this hard for me because you know, I don't have the fitness to do it, or is it because I don't have the skills? I mean, can you can you learn the skills without first having the fitness? I guess is the question. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question because it essentially the the answer is those two components go together hand in hand. You you need some physical fitness and dexterity to just physically control a bike off road on mountain bike trails you need some base level of fitness. But I think more often than probably should happen is people tend to kind of blame one on the other. Like if they can't, if they don't have the skill, they'll say, well, I'm out of shape. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe they have this, maybe they're in really good fit, fitness shape and they're super fit, but I don't really have the skill. So I think the two go hand in hand for sure. But if, if you look at a beginner, and you're on well-built, well-designed green and blue trails, and you have a nice bike, you shouldn't need any exceptional fitness level to perform the skills you need at that point. I think fitness becomes a bigger piece of the pie, so mm-hmm. to speak, Yeah. as the terrain gets more challenging. So as soon as you get to sort of blues, you know, dark blues, blacks, and beyond, Clearly, fitness, you, you need a certain amount of fitness to just get up that climb, um, regardless of your climbing technique. If you don't have the power and the, the cardio, um, you're going to struggle up that climb, regardless of your technique. And I feel that every summer I ride my bike. <laughs> I think yeah. we all do. We all get onto a climb where we're like, man, if I was just fitter, I could have cleaned that. Right. You, you didn't have the power. So that's that's a common scenario. And what we see a lot with cornering is people not having the core strength to, and it's, it's definitely technique, but definitely it boils down to leg strength and core strength to maintain a strong position on a long descent. Yeah. So their weight gets back and then their hands get tired because their weight's back. Cause when your weight's back, you have to grip really tight. Mm-hmm. seems like some of us too, we, we like use one to get away with the other, you know, speaking of cornering too, like, you know, if you're a really fit rider, you can make a mistake in terms of like losing a lot of speed in the corner and then just making up for it by furiously pedaling out of it, you know? Yeah, that's super common. Or you just get people that are super strong and they kind of just bulldoze through things without any finesse or skill. And yeah, I mean, it definitely goes both ways. Like if some people that are super fit, they'll, they'll make up for it by with their physical strength and vice versa. Some people that are less fit, they don't have that to lean on, so they have to be more skilled. Yeah, so they're, they're definitely both important um, pieces, and it kind of just depends where you are, I think, in terms of terrain and where you are in terms of ability level, how much each one will kind of impact you. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you, how do you personally progress in terms of your own mountain bike skills? I think for me personally, what really helps is constantly, because I live in Whistler, you know, from December to, well, November to April, essentially, uh, I'm snowboarding a lot of the time. Um, We'll travel to Australia and do some biking there in the winters for sure. Um, Some PMBI courses down there and New Zealand as well. But if if I'm not on a, on the road doing that, I'm essentially, and that that really helps. Just having multiple sports, I think, has always been a big big driver to a keep you stoked and interested, but b just I think multiple sports is key yeah. to sort of that all round athleticism, that all round agility. Because on a snowboard, for example, a lot of the skills are the same. Like the concepts are the same. Your position and balance. Your yeah, pressure control, your your edging, your timing and coordination, they're all similar concepts regardless of the sport you're doing. So I think that's one thing that helps. And then the other thing that helps for me is is I'm I'm by nature 
uh, especially given my job, I'm really analytical. So like, it's hard for me to go on a ride and not think, <laughs> ah, man, what am I, how can I do that better? Or, or oh, I want to do this today. And like, I'm just constantly setting goals. I think that's the big thing it boils down to. It's, it's very rare that I go on a ride and I'm just like, yay, completely switch off and think of nothing. Like, partly why I love mountain biking is I'll get on my bike and I'll be like, oh, I want to work on that climb today or I want to I want to be breathing less by the time I get to the bottom of that descent or I want to clear that rock roll smoother today or whatever it is, like I'll, I'll have something and then my whole focus is purely on just riding my bike better. Yeah. So I, th- I th- And I think that's what a lot of people don't do is they don't think enough about how they are riding their bike and how they could be riding that or should be riding that bike. And again, that kind of goes back like to YouTube, like the ton of people we see, they just don't have the body awareness. They think they're riding a certain way, but they're not, or they think they're doing X and Y, but they're not, or, or they don't even think about it at all. And they just don't realize <laughs> they don't realize that they're not doing something because they're not even aware of what that something should be in the first place and that's where our coach comes in is so many times we'll have like a client like, oh i haven't i've been mountain biking for 20 years and so i try a lesson and then in five minutes you'll say hey just try this and it kind of blows their mind but it's literally because they've just never thought of it yeah and they could have fixed that themselves 15 years ago but they never even knew it was a thing to fix in the first place so that, you know, again, having someone there watching you is is such a big part of it because unless you have amazing body awareness, the chances are you're not thinking about it and you're not thinking about how to fix it or you don't even know what to think about and you don't know what to fix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think that helps me is I'm just constantly self-coaching. And then, and then the other one, obviously, is just riding with people better than you. Like, yeah, I live in Whistler. Luckily, I'm fortunate to doesn't matter how good you get here you always suck (laughs) it's kind of a good way of looking at it because it's you can never get um you're always humbled here right like like as good as you get and as smooth as you get there's always someone smoother and better and faster and it's such an inspiring thing to have every time you go and ride with your coaches or you ride with with your friends you know i have a couple friends here and ross Dunlop's one of our coaches. He's such a strong athlete, strong rider, and every time you ride with someone like that, it just it just makes you better because you just follow and follow and watch. Yeah, and I think that's where for coaching it it really helps me. Everyone has their different learning styles, but for me, as soon as I'm with someone stronger than me, I just I just want to sit on their tail and follow them, and I learn so much just from following someone physically on the trail and again I, you can't get that in a video you can't get that by reading a magazine like you you have to follow someone who knows how to ride smoothly and efficiently because they've thought about it or they have all those years of experience and then you just for me i just get better every time i, I ride with my staff my staff keep me on my toes they're a little bit younger than me and they're, they're all pushing uh, pushing me every year so I, I i try and help them with their coaching and then they help me with my my riding but it's it's an ongoing process i think mm-hmm, big for part, sure a big part of it is just is is the passion it's the cheesy bit right but it's true it's it's the passion for the sport i think if i wasn't getting better i'd get bored my motivation wouldn't be there like that's why i love biking after all these years is every time i go ride i'm like i can still get better and that that just drives me i think if i if i ever i felt like i could go on a bike ride and i couldn't get better i i I don't even know what that would feel like that would be kind of weird (laughs) yeah it'd be it'd be a weird feeling well do you have a an example or a success story from one of your clients or students at zep uh who's you know, really, skills work has like really made a difference in their writing. Ooh, um, yeah, tons. Yeah, I mean, what does that look like for most people? Is it they're faster, or they're just enjoying the sport more, or or confidence, or yeah? I mean, what what is it that people take away? Well, all, all of the above, really. Like we we always try and start with like 
confidence and and I think a lot of a lot of everything else you want to achieve in your biking comes from the confidence if if you've learned a technique and you develop a certain technique you're going to feel more confident and from there you're going to be smoother or faster or um, more efficient or less tired I think that confidence is a huge thing so our, our big goal is if we could show you how to develop your technique the confidence will automatically kick in and then and then everything kind of builds from there and i think classically i mean it, our goal every lesson is to do that so i've been teaching a long time now and um and it's the same with instructors too is every instructor course we run or camp or private coaching session we run you know we always ask at the end like what have been your main takeaways and a lot of the time you can just see it you don't even have to ask them like yeah if you're coaching well you've got good terrain you'll see it through the day or you'll see it through the weekend or whatever the, the product is and you, you don't even almost have to ask them at the end they're just smiling they're laughing and they're telling you i think that's something i i tell my instructors and coaches that we train a lot is if you're doing it right like the student should be just telling you what they're feeling man i'm feeling faster i'm oh i can't believe how slowly i creep down that rock roll that was crazy and the, the, this our goal is for the student to kind of either show it or say it before the end of the lesson i i think to kind of speak of one example i always think of this one guy he did one of our five week in step um instructor camps and it's it's basically five weeks of rider development improving your your riding here in whistler and then as part of the five weeks you get to do like a, a level one pmbi course and a level two pmbi course and anyway he he was a racer in australia and mostly raced cross country and we worked a lot on sort of skills for downhill for him because he was a crazy fit guy like super fit top 10 national xc rider in and um, I remember that camp because he was basically away from home, away from responsibilities, and he, and he he was partying. He was enjoying Whistler, <laughs> right? Like he wasn't he wasn't training or eating like he probably should have been. Anyway, I think his first race back home, he got his first ever podium in a national race. Oh wow! And that that example always sticks out to me because he says like, I'm not as fit right now physically, but. I just got my best result ever because I just, A, he saved a ton of energy on the downhills because he just had better skills. So he could kind of make up for his lack of fitness on the climbs. Yeah. And he was just way faster on the downhills. So he was like every lap, he was either just passing people on the downhill and then had it just about enough in the tank to kind of hold it on the uphills. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was cornering too. I mean, he was an XC rider. I think a lot of cross-country and trail riders don't understand the importance of... A lot of the time, cornering kind of gets lumped into like, well, that's a downhill thing when you're cornering. You know, but I'm not a downhill. I don't really need to work my cornering. But, you know, up, down, left, right, flat, like there's going to be corners. And that was the other thing he said was just, he just constantly maintained pace through the corners, no matter where it was on the trail. Um, yeah, and I think that season he got back, he, he got a bunch of podiums and his best season ever, but he started the season like totally out of shape. So, hmm. And bike setup was a big part of it too. Like We helped him with his bike setup and got rid of his tiny skinny handlebars and <laughs> sad-looking front tire that just had no grip on it, And uh, which is really common. People focus... They really, I think still these days, there's there's still a tendency sometimes for riders to focus too much on pedal efficiency. And then they have a front tire that has no real tread. So regardless of the style of riding, if your front tire has no real tread on it, every time you turn the bike through a corner, it, it's not going to give you the stability and trust and grip that you need. So, yeah. That that always sticks out to me as an example, um, and it, yeah, I mean, I think that's a lot of people, yeah, can identify with that for sure. So, 
Before we wrap up, what's one skill that mountain bikers can work on right now that's going to pay back the biggest dividend over time? Oh, take take his that lesson, and then I'll. That's <laughs> the secret. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think the big the biggest one is, and it, it's 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 fairly. I'd say it's it's more common knowledge these days, but it's really just your positioning on the bike, and doing a better job of staying in a better position more of the time. It's pretty easy on a mellow trail to kind of stand up and be centered, or um, and be nice and wide and be able to move the bike underneath you, but. But can you be in that that solid position anytime, anywhere? Like, just watch some Red Bull downhill racing. You know, one of the key things that sticks out, you know, you look at Luke and Gwyn, some of those top guys, you know, the, and this is why Sam Hill was always so, so good back in the day, was the one thing he was doing better than everyone else more of the time was his body position on the bike. He was just more centered, more stacked, and because of that, he was he had more control of the bike. If you're centered and stable in yourself as a as a as a mass, you, you're you're in a much better position to manipulate and control the bike. If you're trying to control your mass and where it is or isn't, then how can you really control the bike? But if if your mass is where you want it to be, then you don't almost have to think about that, and you can you can then manipulate the bike. You can on it or lean it or or whatever you, you want it to do and that that's the key skill it's it's all it's all position and balance that's everything stems from that so yeah that would be the yeah yeah that's that's a really good tip and but at the same time yeah it's not one that you know you can just hear that and know <laughs> what that means right like you still need to you need to do your homework and you know having a coach certainly helps yeah Totally, because it, you know, you you can say it simply like, well, you want to be centered, but there's a ton of different there's a ton of different ways to like how can you be centered on the bike and being centered might look differently to a five foot four rider versus a six foot two rider mm-hmm. yeah. on a downhill bike and versus an XC bike or something like that. Like there's there's all these different variables, and that's where that's where the coach is going to come into play and give you what you need. Yeah, well. Paul, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us about mountain bike skills. Uh, I know I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. So thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, and um, yeah, I appreciate you listening. And uh, yeah, thanks so much. It's awesome. Well, you can learn more about Zep at zeptechniques.com, where you can also find out schedules for upcoming camps and training opportunities. And be sure to follow the Single Tracks podcast. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.